Okay, let's turn in our Bibles to Mark's Gospel, chapter 14. And then I'd like you to put your finger there and turn to John 13. Now, if you remember from last week, it's the day of Passover. And the disciples and the Lord have gathered in the upper room of an unknown man, probably a disciple of Christ. And there they are uh, eating the Passover meal together. And we, we looked in John's Gospel uh, because Mark only gives us just a brief account of what transpired that evening. But the events of that evening were so important that John, in his gospel, devotes one quarter of his entire gospel just to the events of this one evening. That's how important it is in John's mind, of course, and of course uh, in the mind of the Holy Spirit. Uh, but So we've been trying to touch on what Marcus said and kind of jump over to John to get the full picture of what's going on. And so the disciples... It says, gathered in the upper room, as we saw last week in John's Gospel, chapter 13. And the meal began, and it started with them drinking the first cup of the Passover meal. There were four different cups of wine. Uh, the wine was mixed three parts wine to two parts water. It was not intended to, to get anyone drunk, but that's what they would drink during the Passover meal. Four different cups of wine at different points in the meal. The meal began with by them washing their uh, hands in a... A ceremonial way, then they began to drink the first cup, which was the cup of sanctification. Now, after that, it seems as though Jesus' disciples got into this argument again, Luke tells us. The argument that they had had from, uh, well, pretty much the beginning of his ministry, who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And they were having this argument, and the Lord is laying there because they were reclining on their left sides. They, they didn't eat at tables. As we said last week, they were kind of leaning over on small couches, uh, propped up on their left by their left arm and eating with their right hand, or they were about to eat with their right hands. And it was customary, though, to either have a servant present to wash the feet of those who came in, since they walked on dirt roads with open sandals and their feet got pretty dirty. And because of these couches called tricliniums that they would recline on, at a 45 degree angle around the table, uh, someone's feet were not too far from your head, so it was common courtesy to have your feet washed. But there was no servant present in the upper room when they got there. It would have been right for one of the disciples to volunteer to wash the other's feet, or at least them take turns to wash each other's feet. But as we said last week, when you're arguing who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom, chances are you're not going to stoop to the lowliest task of the lowliest servant, which was to wash the feet of another. So Jesus is sitting there, or laying there, listening to them arguing about who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And it must have just really caused his stomach to get tied in knots because he knew in just 18 hours he was going to be going to the cross. He was going to be leaving them in just a short while, and he was going to be turning the work of the kingdom over to them. And so he realizes, of course, that they need one more lesson in servanthood. And so he gets up quietly, takes off his robe and tunic, girds himself with a towel around the waist, takes water from the pitcher, pours it into the basin, begins to kneel down and wash the disciples' feet. Well, they, of course, became, I'm sure, extremely embarrassed and quiet, and maybe some began to weep because they recognized how selfish and carnal they were being. And when Jesus got to Peter, Peter says, Lord, you'll never wash my feet. And Jesus said, Peter, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part in me. 
And Peter said, well, then, Lord, I'll take a bath. But obviously, Jesus was speaking in spiritual terms there. It wasn't just, Peter, if you don't let me wash your feet, you can't eat dinner with me tonight. He was talking in spiritual terms. Peter, if I don't cleanse you, you have no part in me. You have no fellowship with me. You have no oneness with me. Speaking, of course, of salvation. And Peter said, well, I'll take a bath, Lord. Jesus said, Peter, those who have already been bathed don't have to be bathed again just to have their feet washed. Once you've been saved through the blood of the Lamb, you don't have to be saved all over again. Just have to have your feet washed from time to time. In other words, you're going to sin because you were still in these bodies. But when you do sin, when you walk through the world and, you know, as you live in this world, you're going to pick up some of the dirt of the world, bring it to the Lord, confess it. He is faithful and just to forgive you your sins and again to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. But that's not salvation. That's just sanctification. That's just fellowship. You're just being cleansed and fellowship is being kept up with the Lord on a daily basis, but has nothing to do with salvation, which is a one-time thing. And after that, Jesus said to them, You know, you call me teacher and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. But if I, being your Lord and your teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done. And so on. So Jesus is teaching them the ultimate lesson in servanthood. He says, if I, being your Lord and teacher, can wash your feet, then you need to go ahead and wash each other's feet. And he wasn't speaking in literal terms there because the Greek word simply means when he said, do as I have done, the Greek word means to carry out the principle but not the exact act. Be servants to each other. I'm not talking about washing each other's feet necessarily. If that is what needs to be done, then do it. But be servants with However that is worked out in your lives, serve one another. And then he laid a bombshell on them. He said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you tonight will betray me. And that threw the room up for grabs, basically. And they all began to murmur and talk among themselves and say out loud, Lord, is it me? Lord, is it me? And then Peter motions over to John, who was laying, reclining right in front of Jesus. Peter being just a short distance away, motions to John, ask him who it is. And John just kind of leans back on Jesus' bosom and looks over his shoulder to where Jesus' face was and says, Lord, who is it? Who is going to do this thing? And Jesus said, the one to whom I, when I dip the bread in the sop and give it to him, that's the one who will betray me. He dips the bread in the sop and gives it to Judas. And uh, Matthew or Luke's gospel tells us Judas responded by saying, Lord, it's not me, is it? To which Jesus said, you've said it. What you do, go do quickly. And apparently this conversation went on in such a way as it was quiet enough where the other disciples didn't hear it, which meant Judas had to be right behind the Lord, reclining behind Jesus, which as we said last week was the place of honor. How did he get there? Jesus must have invited him to recline there. So Jesus, even at this late date, was trying to bring Judas to repentance, trying to show Judas he loved him and wanted to be a savior still. But Judas took the, the, the piece of bread, ate it. Satan at that point entered into him. And he got up and Jesus said, what you do, do quickly. And Judas left. And the other disciples didn't know what was going on. They didn't hear this conversation. They thought Judas was going to give something to the poor or to buy something for the feast. They had no idea what he was up to. He slipped out. He was going to then, the, the uh, events that would lead to the crucifixion were now set into motion. And uh, that would be it. After Judas then leaves the room back in Mark's gospel, and I believe that's the right chronology, then verse 22, 
As they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to them, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many, and Mark's gospel tells us, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Assuredly, I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So they're eating the Passover meal. Judas is now gone. That's at least that's the way I see it. I don't see Jesus instituting this new supper to commemorate the new covenant with Judas there. So I, I believe Judas is gone. And then he turns to the eleven, and he gives to them a new supper. Now, they were eating the Passover. The Passover, as you read Exodus chapter 12, was the meal that God had given to Israel to, to participate in as a memorial. Exodus 12:14 says it was a memorial to remind them of how God, through the blood of the Lamb, had delivered them from the bondage of Egypt, from under the cruel uh, you know, servitude of Pharaoh, who was a type of Satan, Egypt being a type of the world. Through the blood of the Lamb, God had redeemed them out of that, that horrible bondage. Of course, the first Passover they had to eat standing up with their sandals on, their robes uh, you know, girded to their waists, with their staff in their hand. Uh, that's why they had to eat unleavened bread. They were to eat it so quickly they didn't have time to let the bread rise because they had to make haste because they had to depart in a hurry as slaves from a strange land. That's how they ate the first Passover meal. But now years later, of course, centuries later, the rabbis thought it was okay to eat the Passover reclining and laying down because now it spoke of free men eating in their own land. See? The first Passover slaves coming out quickly from a foreign land, but now, of course, as free men, eating in their land of promise, they could recline and eat casually and take their time because uh, there was no need to, to rush. But you remember, after they ate the Passover meal, God then redeemed them out of Egypt. And then he brought them through the Red Sea, where he dealt with Pharaoh's uh, army, brought them to the base of Sinai, where he proposed a covenant to them. He said, look, I've redeemed you out of Egypt now. I want you to be my special people. I want to bless you above all the peoples of the earth. I want you to be my own special treasure. And if you will agree to be my people and let me be your God, then I will bless you beyond your wildest dreams. But there are some terms you have to keep. There are some conditions with this covenant. And he goes on to give them the Ten Commandments. As part of the conditions or the terms of this covenant, he wanted them to enter into with him. And of course, the terms of the covenant were, were that they had to obey him. They had to obey his commandments. They had to obey the terms of the covenant. And if they obeyed the terms of the covenant, God would respond by blessing them above all the nations of the earth. That was the Mosaic covenant. The Mosaic covenant was based on their faithfulness, first of all, to obey what God had said, which meant it was doomed from the start, because we're not very faithful, are we? Oh, we have good intentions. But as Jesus told Peter as he fell asleep at the prayer meeting, Peter, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And that sums up basically all of us. I believe Israel, many times, they wanted to obey God. They wanted to do what was right. 
Many Jews, I'm convinced, were not hypocrites. They really wanted to obey God and to live according to his commandments. But what they wanted to do in their spirit or in their hearts, they found that through their flesh they were weak, and they constantly stumbled, they constantly sinned. Now, when they stumbled and when they sinned, the Mosaic Covenant also provided for a way that they might have their sins covered and forgiven, but didn't take away sin, it just kind of temporarily covered it. And that's where the, the sacrifices came in. All the animal sacrifices, which as you go on then through uh, the rest of Exodus and Leviticus, it talks about all these elaborate sacrifices that they had to bring to God for the various sins they committed. And the Mosaic Covenant was a covenant that was based, was blessings for obedience, but it was also a covenant that provided for sin, that their sin might be covered because Leviticus 17, uh, 17 11, I have given you of the blood upon the altar to make atonement for the soul, for it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. The book of Hebrews tells us very clearly, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. So the soul that sins shall surely die, God said, but God didn't want us to die for our sins, so he provided a substitute. That's what the animal sacrifices were all about. They provided a substitute. But it was temporary. It was, it was uh, an incomplete sacrifice. They couldn't, the blood of goats and bulls could never take away sin. The writer to the Hebrews tells us that very clearly. So the Mosaic Covenant was a temporary covenant. And really, as Paul said in Galatians and other places, part of it was that God wanted to show his people that they could never. He wanted to give, give them a chance to, you know, try to, uh, the human reaction when God says to us, you know, you can't be good enough for me. The human heart wants to say, oh, but let me try. I'm sure I can, Lord. I'm, I'm sure I can. And so no, no doubt God foresaw that attitude in the hearts of the Jews. And so he allowed them to try through the Mosaic Covenant. And they got so frustrated, they kept breaking the commandments of God over and over again, that it actually was a, a kind of a school teacher, Paul said, to teach them they could not live according to God's standards. They needed to have another way. And the other way was through Christ, who would give us the new covenant. You see, in Jeremiah chapter 31, God said through the prophet Jeremiah in verse 31 of chapter 31, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. And of course, the ultimate fulfillment of that promise was the millennial kingdom, when Jesus Christ would come and reign as Messiah from Jerusalem over the face of the whole earth. And then no one will have to do any witnessing and say, well, come and know the Lord, because everyone would know him. The earth would be filled with the knowledge of the Lord, see? But it had its beginning fulfillment in the cross of Christ. And as we come back to Mark chapter 14, we see that Jesus Christ is about to end the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant. It's about to come to an end. In fact, he uses the very meal, the very supper, 
that God instituted, the Passover, to cause them to remember the Old Covenant. He is using that very supper to end the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, and to institute a brand new covenant with a brand new meal that would be now the memorial meal for the people of God under this new covenant. And it's called the Lord's Supper, which replaces the Passover. The Passover, from a spiritual standpoint, came to an end this night. Now, that's not to say that it's wrong to for people to observe the Passover meal. It's kind of a uh, reminder of what the symbolism that God was working through Israel and all that. No problem. It's just that, spiritually speaking, the Passover, technically, for the people of God, is, is over with. I mean, it has no more spiritual significance for the people of God. The new meal for the people of God under the New Covenant is, of course, the Lord's Supper. The New Covenant was also going to be a blood covenant. It was going to be a covenant made with the blood of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, Jesus Christ. And remember how that after the lamb was slain and the blood was placed on the doorpost and lentil of the house, which would allow the angel of death or cause the angel of death to pass over that house so that the judgment of God would really pass over the people in that house. Then what did they do with the lamb? They partook of it. They ate the lamb that had been slain and the blood placed on the doorpost that had actually purchased their salvation or had saved them from the judgment of God and this is what Jesus Christ is basically doing here he is saying look I'm going to about to shed my blood as the lamb of God to institute the new covenant the word covenant means to cut you would cut a covenant remember it was a blood covenant how they would take the animals and they would cut them in two lay the pieces on the ground and then both parties who wanted to enter into a contract or a covenant with each other would pass through the animal pieces, and that would ratify the covenant. It was a blood covenant, a blood contract. And that's exactly what we have going on here. Back in Egypt, of course, the lamb was a literal lamb that was slain, and the blood became the blood contract of God's redemptive work for his people Israel. But now the lamb of God was about to shed his blood to enter, cause us to enter into another blood covenant but this would not be temporary this would be eternal see and where the first covenant was weak through the flesh the second covenant was going to be strong through the spirit because this time God would bring his spirit and put his spirit into our hearts he would write his laws on our hearts and basically he would give to us new hearts and he would write his laws in our hearts in other words we would desire with all of our heart to obey the law of God the Spirit of God would then come into us, give us the strength to obey the law of God. And this would be a covenant that would also deal with sin, but not through the sacrifices of many animals, but through the sacrifice of one person, Jesus Christ, who died once for all. And after he shed his blood, he ascended into heaven and, and sat down at the right hand of the Father as our great high priest, signifying the work was done. The high priest never sat down because it was always one more sacrifice to make for sin. Somebody was always bringing sacrifices for sins that he had to offer. But Jesus, as our great high priest, offered himself as the ultimate sacrifice. And when he ascended into heaven, he sat down, signifying his work was finished. He said before he bowed his head and dismissed his spirit, it is finished, right? And even as they then ate the lamb that purchased their redemption. Jesus then went on to say here, he blessed the bread, broke it, 
gave it to them and said, Take and eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and he gave it to them and said, Take this and drink it, this is my blood, the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for the remission of sins. And so he is saying to us, This blood now, excuse me, this bread and this wine, symbolize my body and blood. And as you partook of the Passover lamb in the old covenant, now I want you to partake of the bread and the wine under the new covenant as a symbol of my body and my blood. Now, does this mean it was literally the body and blood of Jesus Christ? Well, the Catholic Church teaches that a doctrine called the doctrine of transubstantiation, which means where they believe that during the Eucharist, and the word Eucharist comes right out of the Greek, it means to give thanks, but during the Eucharist, they believe that the bread and the wine literally become the body and blood of Jesus Christ because Jesus said, it is my body, it is my blood, so we're literally eating the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Is that what the scriptures teach? No. No, it was a symbol. You say, well, but Jesus said it was his body and his blood. Well, in John 9, Jesus said, I'm the door, but that doesn't mean he's made out of wood. In John 15, he said, I'm the true vine. That didn't mean he had grapes grown all over his body. The point is, he was using this as a symbol. We know that this is where he was coming from because in John chapter 6, remember how that he had just fed the 5,000 and then he got into a boat, went over to Capernaum. The next day they got into boats and followed him over to Capernaum. And he, they came to him looking really for him to feed them again. But Jesus said to them, in verse 26, you only seek me because you saw the signs and because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not labor for the food which perishes, which, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you because uh, God the Father has set his seal on him. And Jesus basically was saying to them, look, don't seek me because I fed you physically, but seek me because I can give you bread that will give you eternal life. And he goes on to say, your fathers ate bread in the wilderness uh, and were sustained. I am the bread of life, which came down from heaven. Uh, verse 34, he who comes to me shall never hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. Now, Jesus Christ is going to use the opportunity to teach them about how his body and his blood are bread and drink. And he basically says to them in verse 53, most assuredly, I say to you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, I and I live because of the Father. Who, uh, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. After he taught these things, the Pharisees said, this guy's got a demon, man. He's talking about cannibalism. And a lot of his disciples said, man, this is a hard saying. And a lot of his disciples left him at this point and followed him no more. And then he turned to his 12 and said, will you also go? And Peter said, Lord, where shall we go? Only you have the words of eternal life. It was a hard saying. But he wasn't speaking literally, he was speaking spiritually. He said, look, the manna in the wilderness that kept your fathers alive, it pointed to me. They ate it physically, and it sustained them. It gave them physical life. But it pointed to me as the bread of life, eternal life. And if you eat my body and drink my blood, you will live, not physically, but you'll live eternally. Now, what does that mean? Well, it just simply means 
as you ate, eat food and it was entered into your mouth and then is uh, swallowed, enters into your stomach where it's digested and assimilated throughout, uh, carried by your blood throughout all the parts of your body where it becomes one with you, so too we have to partake of Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God so that he becomes one with us. The only way he is going to save us and do us any good spiritually is if we identify with him so completely that he becomes one with us so that the life he lived, we live. See? I mean, what motivated his life motivates ours and so on. That's what he meant when he said, you know, got to eat my body and drink my blood. I'm the Passover lamb. But I'm not speaking about cannibalism. I'm talking about you so identifying with me, so believing in me, that I become one with you, that my life becomes your life and so on. Our lives become intertwined. And so Jesus wasn't speaking literally in Mark's Gospel, chapter 14. He was speaking symbolically. That's what it's all about. That's why when we partake of the unleavened wafer and the grape juice, it's a symbol. That's all it is. It reminds us of how that Jesus is our Passover lamb, Paul said in 1 Corinthians, redeemed us out of the bondage of sin and death, see, and brought us into the new covenant. And that's what the new covenant was all about. It was a covenant, a blood covenant, where Jesus shed his blood that we might have forgiveness of sins. Verse 25, Assuredly, I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until the day that I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. Now, to understand what is going on here, to understand the Passover meal and to get the full impact of what Jesus was doing, let's read what the Passover Seder was all about. I'm going to read to you from William Barclay's commentary, and he outlines the order of the Passover meal, and in so doing, you'll get an idea of what they were doing and at what point the Lord took the cup and instituted this new memorial, the Lord's Supper, for the people under the new covenant, the people of God. The first order of business, of course, when they first began the meal, was they partook of the cup of, of uh, Kiddush. Kiddush means sanctification or separation. This was the act which, as it were, separated this meal from all other common meals. The head of the family took the cup and prayed over it, and then all drank of it. So it began with the cup of Kiddush, the cup of sanctification. That was followed by the first hand washing. This was carried out only by the person who was to celebrate the feast. Three, three times he had to wash his hands in the prescribed way. Next, a piece of parsley or lettuce was taken and dipped in a bowl of salt water and eaten. This was an appetizer to the meal, but the parsley stood for the hyssop with which the lintel had been smeared with the blood, and the salt stood for the tears of Egypt and for the waters of the Red Sea through which Israel had been brought through safely. Next was the breaking of bread. Two blessings were used at the breaking of bread, and he gives both of them. Blessed be thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who bringest forth from thy earth. And secondly, blessed art thou, O Father in heaven, who givest us this day the bread necessary for us. On the table lay three circles of unleavened bread. The middle one was taken and broken. At this point only a little was eaten, and it was to remind the Jews of the bread of affliction that they ate in Egypt, and it was broken to remind them that slaves had never a whole loaf, but only broken crust to eat. 
As it was broken, the head of the family said, This is the bread of affliction which our forefathers ate in the land of Egypt. Whosoever is hungry, let him come and eat. Whosoever is in need, let him come and keep the Passover with us. In the modern celebration, Barclay adds, In the modern celebration in strange lands, here is added the famous prayer, This year we keep it here, next year in the land of Israel. This year as slaves, next year as free. So if you're a Jew living outside the land, at this point you always add the prayer, This year we celebrate it here, next year in Israel. Next came the relating of the story of deliverance. The youngest person present had to ask, what made this day different from all other days and why all this was being done? At that point, the head of the house had, had to tell the story of the history of Israel down to the great deliverance which the Passover commemorated. The Passover could never become a ritual. It was always a commemoration of the power and mercy of God. Next at this point, Psalm 113 and 114 were sung. Psalms 113 through 118 are known as the Hillel Psalms, the Psalms of Praise, and all these psalms are praising psalms. They were a part of the, of the very earliest material which a Jewish boy had to commit to memory. These were the Messianic Psalms, Psalms 113 to 118, and they were sung at various points throughout the Passover Seder. At this point, the second cup was drunk. It was called the cup of Haggadah, which means the cup of explaining or proclaiming. All those present now washed their hands in preparation for the meal. A grace was said, and here it is, Blessed art thou, O Lord, our God, who bringest forth fruit from the earth. Blessed art thou, O God, who hast sanctified us with thy commandment and enjoined us to eat unleavened cakes. Thereupon small pieces of unleavened bread were distributed. Next, some bitter herbs were placed between two pieces of unleavened bread dipped in the karasheth. Remember what the karasheth was? It was a mixture of apples, dates, pomegranates, and nuts, all mixed together with a little wine, and it signified the mortar that they had to make in Egypt. Of course, that was very uh, bitter to remember, the slavery which they had to make the mortar, but the karasheth was sweet, which symbolized the fact that God had turned their bitter bondage into sweet deliverance. At that point, though, in the meal, they would take two pieces of unleavened bread and it, they would dip it in the karasheth and it was eaten. This was called the sop. It was at this point, if you remember, that Jesus took the bread and dipped it in the sop and gave it to Judas. So that was important, okay? And it all follows the format of what we're talking about. At this point, Judas gave excuse me, Jesus gave Judas the unleavened bread dipped in the karasheth or the sop and said, what you do, do quickly. Judas then, I believe, got up and left the room. Then follow the meal proper. The whole lamb must be eaten. Anything left over must be destroyed and not used for any common meal. This was a, uh, a special meal. You couldn't make lamb, you know, sandwiches the next day if you had lamb left over. You had to eat the whole thing, and whatever was not eaten was burned. Again, now, after the meal, the hands were cleansed. The remainder of unleavened bread was eaten. There was a prayer of thanksgiving containing the petition for Elijah to uh, herald the Messiah. Remember, it talks about how in Malachi, before God closes out the Old Testament, he says, I'm going to send to you Elijah before the coming of Messiah. So the Passover meal, at one point, the youngest in the, in the room runs to the door. They always set an extra place for Elijah, by the way. 
And at one point in the meal, the youngest child runs to the door and opens it up, hoping to see Elijah standing there. Because, of course, that would signify Messiah was not far behind. Then the third cup was drunk, which was called the cup of blessing. At this point, the third cup was drunk. And I believe, and many commentators believe, it was with this third cup that Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. Well, we know that was probably true because in 1 Corinthians 10, 16, Paul says, in talking about communion, the Lord's Supper, that he used the cup of blessing to institute the Lord's Supper. Now, here's where we are in the Passover feast. The cup of blessing has been drunk. Jesus says, this is the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for the remission of sins. And he passes them the cup of blessing and uses it to institute the Lord's Supper. And they have a prayer that they say, or a blessing that's pronounced, Blessed art thou, O Lord God, King of the universe, who has created the fruit of the vine. The second part of the Hillel, Psalms 115 to 118, is now sung. And at this point, then the fourth cup is drunk, the cup of joy. And Psalm 136, the great Hillel, is sung. And then two short prayers were offered, and the meal was finished. However... After Jesus used the third cup, the cup of blessing, and he gave it to his disciples and they drunk from it, and he used it to institute the Lord's Supper, he says in verse 25, Assuredly I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it anew with you, Matthew says, in my Father's kingdom. I believe that Jesus never got to that fourth cup. And many commentators believe that Jesus... What he was saying and by saying in Mark 25, 14, 25, that he wasn't going to drink of that fourth cup, the cup of joy, until he drank it with all of them in his father's kingdom. So at that point, they sung the uh, Psalm 118, the Hillel Psalm, and they left the room. They never finished the Passover meal that night, which means... And I believe that the Bible teaches that when Jesus comes for us, when he comes for his church, and we sit down at the marriage supper of the Lamb, the first thing we're going to do is we're going to drink that cup of joy with him. We're going to finish the Passover meal that he started almost 2,000 years ago, which he left unfinished, because he wasn't going to drink that final cup, the cup of joy, which signified the gathering all of his people to him in the kingdom until we were all gathered to him. And then we would drink that final cup, the cup of joy. And then, of course, he would bring us to the earth to set up his kingdom. So that Passover meal, I believe, was left unfinished. And he will finish it with all of us on the day he comes for us. I will drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. And it says they sung a hymn and they went out to the Mount of Olives. Uh, at this point, tradition says that Jesus sung Psalm 118, which was a messianic psalm. You can read that psalm this week. But one of the parts of the psalm says, This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Can you imagine? I mean, when we sing that, and we sing that psalm here at Calvary, but whenever we sing that psalm, what goes through your mind as you're singing this psalm? I mean, you know, when you sing that psalm, it kind of, you kind of feel like, Wow, if it's a nice day outside, the sun is shining. This is the day that, the, you know, and it's a nice day and you're feeling kind of upbeat and all. And 
But look at the context. Jesus sung that psalm just several hours before the cross. Can you imagine him singing at all that close to the cross? And when you recognize the context, how that the cross was just a few hours away, and here he's singing, this is the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. No, I'm not looking forward to going to the cross, but I'm looking forward to fulfilling my Father's will. And I'm looking forward to shedding my blood so that people might be saved. Now, at this point, we need to turn over to John's Gospel because a lot happened between verse 26 and uh, verse 27. Actually, even before they got up and left the room, a lot happened because in John's Gospel, chapter 13, John doesn't actually... Uh, he doesn't actually lead us through uh, the institution of the Lord's Supper. But John, in verse 31 of chapter 13, he records something the other gospel writers don't record, where Jesus said, The Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, uh, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him immediately. Little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. So now I say to you, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples, that you have love, and the Greek is the word agape, that you have fervent love for one another. Now I believe this took place after the Lord instituted the Lord's Supper. And if you remember when they ate the Passover meal, right, and then God led them out of Egypt, he eventually brought them to the base of Mount Sinai where he gave to them the, new co the, the Mosaic Covenant. And it consisted of commandments, but they were negative commandments. Thou shalt not, thou shalt not. There were ten of them, right? Well, this was the new covenant. And it was a covenant that was going to celebrate Jesus redeeming us through his own blood and it was not without its commandments but it was a new commandment and it wasn't based on negatives but on positives you shall love each other even as I have loved you a new commandment I give to you see not like the old covenant it had commandments too they were all negative thou shalt not thou shalt not the new covenant has a commandment and it's thou shalt love each other as I have loved you. Now you say, well, gee, what's so new about that? They were commanded to love one another. And certainly that's true. In the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, they were commanded to love their neighbor as they loved themselves. See, there was nothing new about commanding them to love. Well, what made this different? Well, there's a difference between loving your neighbor as yourself and loving each other the way Jesus loved us. Loving your neighbor as yourself means the way you treat yourself, treat others. Loving each other as Jesus loved us means you put others above yourself and you're willing to die for them every day for their needs, to put them first, even as Jesus died to put us first, really, and died on the cross for our benefit, see? Uh, in that regard, it was a new commandment. It transcended uh, this kind of, you know, uh, as you love yourself, love others. It transcended that kind of love. It was an agape love. That love was a phileo love, a reciprocal love. You love yourself, love others, see? But this was agape love. Only the 
New Covenant could teach this kind of love. Because only the New Covenant provided for the Holy Spirit to come into the hearts of the people of the New Covenant and give them the ability to love with God's love, that agape kind of love. We don't have that kind of love within us. See, we can't love with God's love unless God lives within us and gives us the strength to love that way. Now, then Jesus talked about them, uh, you know, Peter uh, denying him and all. And Jesus then goes on to give them a very important private kind of a sermon that covers John chapters 14 through 17. Mark doesn't cover this, Matthew, Luke. Only John really covers this in detail. Very important final words of Jesus on the eve of his crucifixion to his disciples. He talks about in verse chapter 14, he said, Look, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you now. Please, there's so many people that teach that, you know, we have mansions waiting up in heaven for us, you know, and, and I've, I've heard guys say, I had a vision and God showed me the mansions that we're going to have. Oh, but he also showed me that there were some that were not very glorious. They were more like shacks. And these would be the places that those would live in who didn't really walk by faith and serve God. And come on, I mean, you know, you know, when we die, Peter isn't going to meet us by the gates of heaven with a real estate map and a golf cart to take us to our mansion. The word in the Greek means dwelling places. This Sunday night we're going to study in part Solomon's temple. And when Solomon built the temple, he built all around it, three stories up. Connected to the temple itself there were rooms. Some of them were storage rooms, but many of them were apartments that the, the priests would live in. And so that's the imagery. In the Father's house, all around, there are these dwelling places. See, we're all close to the Father. There's going to be no mansions in that regard. We're going, to have, we're going to live right in the Father's house. See, close to Him is the implication. Not some far off, some in the slums and the ghettos of heaven because they didn't live you know, certain lives for God. That's, what kind of place would heaven be if there were the you know, upper middle and lower classes and things like that? That's so ridiculous. They're, these are not literal mansions. They're just dwelling places. But Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I'm going to come again someday to receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And he says to the, Jesus said, And where I go, you know, and the way you know. And Thomas says, Lord, we don't know where you're going, and how can we know the way? And Jesus said, Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Um, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And really what Jesus was saying is, Thomas, I am the way. You don't have to find your way to heaven. I'm going to come and get you. I am the way. Just believe in me. Someday I'll come back for you. And then he goes on to tell them that he's not going to leave them orphans, though. He's going to send to them another comforter, the Holy Spirit, who would be with them forever. Look, he said, I've commissioned you to do a great work. I have commanded you to live a special kind of life. I know that you can't do this work and live this life in the energy of your flesh. I'm not asking you to. I'm going to send to you another person of the Godhead. God in another form is what he was saying. God the Spirit. He's going to come and live inside of you and give you the strength and the power to live for me and do the work I've called you to do. And he will give to you peace, not as the world gives, and then in John chapter 15, Jesus said, I am the true vine. 
and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that bears fruit, he proves that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as a branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. Now, a lot of people read what Jesus said here, they become extremely concerned, even panicked. Because it sounds like Jesus is saying, look, if you don't abide in me, and they interpret that to mean if you don't walk with me, if you backslide, you know, then not only will you not bear fruit, but you'll be like a branch withered and you'll be gathered and burned in the fire. And so a lot of people read this passage and they use it to teach that a Christian who is not faithful, a Christian who is not, does not walk with God, can fall away to the point where they lose their salvation and they're gathered up at one point and burned in judgment. But is that what Jesus is saying? No, I don't believe so. Remember the context. Context is everything. What has just gone on? One of the twelve has just gotten up and left the room because he is going to now betray Jesus Christ. Jesus had said very clearly earlier in the evening, John 13, 10 and 11, that Judas was not ever born again. He was never one of Jesus' true disciples. He had superficially attached himself to Jesus Christ from all outward appearance, he looked like a disciple. He was an apostle. And yet he had not really attached himself to Jesus in the sense where the life of Jesus Christ had flown, flowed from Jesus into his life where he had gotten saved. The other disciples, of course, had really attached themselves to Christ. And the life that was in Christ had flowed into them. And they had received eternal life through Jesus. But Judas had not really received this life because he had only superficially attached himself to Jesus. He didn't abide in Christ. And so at one point he showed his true colors and he removed himself from Christ and he went out and betrayed the Lord. And Judas is going to, will spend eternity in hell. Now with that on Jesus' mind, he talks about true branches and false branches. Jesus' branches and Judas' branches, if you will. Hopefully, everyone here is a Jesus branch. You have really given your heart to Him. You have really accepted Him as your Lord and Savior. And you have received eternal life through Him. But there's a lot in the church who are Judas branches, who are playing a game, who have only superficially attached themselves to Christ, who are not really born again. They come to church, they call Him Lord. But as Jesus said very clearly, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, for many will say to me on the day of judgment, Lord, Lord, haven't we cast out demons in your name and prophesied in your name and done many work, good works in your name? He will say to them, Depart from me, I never knew you. And Judas was the ultimate example of that very thing. And that's a frightening, sobering thought that a person can go to church all their life, hear the word of God, call Jesus Lord, be involved in ministry, and yet never really know him. And I think that's what exactly the point Jesus was trying to make here. Not everyone who seems to have attached themselves to me is a true Jesus branch. There are some who are Judas branches. 
How do you know? They don't abide. Eventually they forsake me. Eventually they walk away. They turn their backs on me. Even as John the Apostle went on to say in his first epistle, many have gone out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they have been really of us, if they have been really one of us, true disciples, they would have remained with us. But since they have forsaken us, it just demonstrated that they were never really genuine. See, Jesus said, if you continue in my, in my word, you are truly my disciples. And that's basically what he is saying here. He's not talking about Christians who lose their salvation. He's talking about phonies in the church, Judas branches that appear to be saved, that appear to be Christians, but aren't. And Jesus says, someday you're going to know because these are going to be gathered and burned. Even as Paul told Timothy, uh, he said, um, the testimony of the Lord stands having this seal. The Lord knows who belong to him. Uh, God knows those who are his. Of all the people that go to church all throughout America, and I'm just using our country as an example, how many of those people are really genuine Christians. I mean, of all the churches we have in America, all that claim to belong and be Christian churches, all the denominations and so on, of all of those people, how, how many do you think are really saved and how many are not really saved? Well, I don't know, but I'll tell you one thing. I'm sure a lot of them are not saved. And there's only a few out of all those millions of people. What, the latest... Gallup poll or whatever says that 80% of Americans believe they're Christians? Come on. Do you think 80% of your neighbors are Christians? Uh, there's No, there's a big problem there. Okay? Between perception and reality. We know there's a lot of Judas branches hanging around Christ. See? And that's exactly what I believe Jesus was talking about here. And then he again reaffirms this commandment he says that he has given them. That they love each other even as he had loved them. For in so doing, he said, your joy will be full. Then he warns them. He says, look, if the world hated me, it's going to hate you. Don't think it's going to be any different for you because, you know, a teacher, a student isn't greater than his teacher, nor is a, a servant greater than his Lord. If they've hated me, they're going to hate you also. If they have persecuted me, they're going to persecute you also. The world is going to hate you without a cause, even as it's hated me without a cause. And then he gets into to John chapter 16 and by the way I forgot to mention at the end of John chapter 14 here is where they get up and leave the room remember how in Mark's gospel it says they sung a hymn then they got up and went to the Mount of Olives well okay at the end of Mark, John 14 they, they get up now and they leave the room now they're walking through the streets of Jerusalem Mark doesn't record what they're talking about but here we have it in John 15 and 16 and 17 John 15, 16, and 17, Jesus is still talking to them as they're walking through the streets of Jerusalem toward the east gate, which will then take him out of the city, down the Kidron Valley, and up to the Mount of Olives, to the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus will spend his last night on this earth before the cross. So now they're in transit. And in John 15, they come to what many commentators believe is the east gate now which was adorned with beautiful carvings of vines and, uh, and, uh, and grapes. And it was night, of course. There was Passover time, which meant there was a full moon out. It could be that Jesus and his disciples at that point stopped 
As they looked up and saw the beautiful vines uh, carved on the gate that led out of the city, the east gate, with the beautiful grapes carved uh, into it, that Jesus could have stopped and said, I am the true vine, and begun to teach them about, you know, abiding in him and so on. And then from that point, he talks some more about the Holy Spirit in John 16. And then in John 17, he offers a prayer. And this is really the Lord's Prayer. We talk about the other prayer, the Our Father being the Lord's Prayer. That's really not the Lord's Prayer. Because Jesus, excuse me, himself could not have really prayed that prayer. You know, forgive me my sins as I forgive others who sinned against me. Jesus couldn't have prayed that prayer. That was the disciples' prayer. When they said, Lord, teach us to pray, he gives to them a model prayer. That was for them. But this is the Lord's Prayer, John 17. And he begins by praying for himself in verses 1 through 5. Then in verses 6 through 19, he prays for his disciples, those that were standing right there with him. And he says, um, verse 15, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, Father, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified by the truth. But then Jesus does a remarkable thing. He prays for us. Do you know that Jesus Christ prayed for you right here in John's gospel? He says in verse 20, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So every one of us, all of us who have been saved through the preaching of the apostles, which, of course, has come down through the centuries, as people have gotten saved through their preaching, and, of course, others have gotten saved through their preaching, and as the word of God has continued to be passed down through the centuries and now it has touched our lives and we have gotten saved through the word that Jesus committed to the apostles. Jesus here in John 17 prays for us. And he prays that we would be strong and that we would be one, verse 21, that they all may be one as you, uh, excuse me, that you, Father, and are in me and I in you and that they also may be one in us the world may believe that you have sent me. So Jesus Christ prayed to his Father that we might have unity as his disciples. That's why disunity is such a serious thing. That's why division and discord being sown in the body is such a horrible thing. Because the last prayer that Jesus prayed for us before the cross was that we might be one. That was something that was really heavy on his heart, that we would all walk in unity with each other, that that love that he talked about that he commanded us to walk in. That if we did, the world would know that we were his disciples. That was very important for him. to. He wanted that desperately for us. And so he ends his prayer. And then verse 1 of chapter 18 says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out, went out of the city. They went through the east gate, no doubt, with his disciples over the brook Kidron. And they then went to the Garden of Gethsemane. So all that transpired... In, in between the white spaces of Mark 14:26, after they sung Psalm 118, it says they got up, Mark says they got up and went over to the Mount of Olives. But on the way, Jesus is still teaching them. He teaches them John 15, 16, as they stop by the east gate. Then as they stop there, he then prays for them and for himself and for all of us. 
And then he leaves the city, goes down the Kidron Valley up to the Mount of Olives to the Garden of Gethsemane, where the final events will begin to take place that will lead him then to the cross the next day. We'll study that in detail next week as we look at Jesus' prayer in the garden, the soldiers coming to arrest him, and the events of that next day that led to his crucifixion. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your sacrifice for us, Lord. We thank you that you were the willing Lamb of God who died willingly for us, that we might be saved. Thank you, Lord, that we have a new and better covenant, not based on our faithfulness, but upon your faithfulness, not based upon insufficient sacrifices of animals, but upon the totally sufficient sacrifice of our Savior and Lord. Lord, thank you that we are the recipients of a better covenant. And every time, Lord, we participate in the supper that you gave us to remember you by, help us to remember, Lord, the great price you had to pay and were willing to pay and even rejoiced in paying that we might be redeemed, that we might be brought into oneness with you and the Father and the Holy Spirit, and that someday, Lord, you would come for us, take us out of this dying world system, and bring us to your kingdom. And you wipe away every tear from our eyes, and then and only then can we drink that final cup, that cup of joy, because only then will we really know joy unspeakable and full of glory as we sit down with you in, in your kingdom. And Lord, all the turmoil, all the trials, all the heartaches, all the tears, all the pain of life will be behind us. And all we will look forward to will be eternity of, an eternity of joy. We thank you, Lord. That's an exciting thought to ponder. We live for that joy. We live for that hope. Help us, Lord, until you come for us, though, to live every day for you, to recognize that you have commissioned us to do a great work, and the world is not going to appreciate it. The world is going to hate us and persecute us for it, but we are to respond to the world with a new commandment, a commandment of love, because, Lord, as you taught your disciples, Many were drawn to you by your miracles. But after, Lord, your death, resurrection, and ascension, people would be drawn to you through the love they would see in your disciples. Help us, Lord, to love each other. Help us, Lord, to love the lost with your love. For I believe that through the love of God shown through your people, people will be drawn to you and be saved. We just love you, Lord. We just thank you for this time. We ask it now in Jesus' name. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.